0: Hello, everyone. Happy Wednesday, you guys. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, I just want to remind you to go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already. And also, if you have the time to do so, I would really appreciate it if you could go ahead and rate the podcast as well. I always love learning about how I can improve the podcast better for you guys as well as what the things are that you love about it. So definitely if you have the time, I would really appreciate if you could do that. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the unsolved murder of Veronica Anderson. Now, before we get started, I want to go ahead and take a look back at last week's case when we talked about Suzanne Morphew and her unsolved disappearance. I wanted to go ahead and read through some of the comments that you guys had on that case because you guys were very, pretty much strong opinionated on this case. I definitely thought it was going to be more 50-50. However, you all seem to really have your opinions on this case, which I loved. I was loving reading your comments. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, you can pause this and then go back and listen to it, or instead you can skip through this part and then listen to this episode and then go back after and listen to last week's as well. So as always, you guys can send in your thoughts, questions, theories, comments, anything in between to killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. That's where I read a lot of your guys' suggestions as well as your case recommendations and your theories. So I'm going to read a theory that someone wrote in about the Suzanne Morphew case. And this person said, hi, I am currently living in Colorado First, I wanted to point out how Colorado is for the ones who have never been here. We have many forests, creeks, mountains, old mines, and such. If you look up the drive from Suzanne's small town to Denver, it is actually almost a two-hour drive and Highway 50 follows along the Arkansas River, which by the way, back in May, would have been the highest the river gets. So my point is, Barry could have planned this. First, by continuously extending the project closer to his kid's out-of-town trip when he knew he would be home alone with Suzanne. Secondly, he could have loaded her bike and helmet and thrown them on the deserted mountain road at about 5am, which is when it is still dark, and dispose of her body in so many places along Highway 50. Third, the bleach smell, and fourth, not notifying authorities first and calling the neighbor to establish an alibi and initiate search in a timely manner so many coincidences or conveniences for him. Just like Chris Watts, eventually the truth will come out." Now, I really liked reading that comment because I liked hearing from someone who was familiar with the area, um, someone who lives in Colorado, which is where this case takes place. It was really interesting and helpful to hear that point of view. Now heading over to some of the comments on my YouTube channel, which by the way is just Savannah Brimer, if you are unaware, I post these cases on there as well. Someone said, quote, Barry is guilty. Only a matter of time till the truth is found out. I feel like a mountain lion attack would have been more obvious. I feel like abduction is more probable but for her husband to not assume that first is wild. If he's not guilty, then man. The timeline of events certainly was not in his favor." I wonder if the hotel has footage of him entering and leaving. Curious to see if he brought anything in with him or what he looked like before leaving, whether he was dirty or had blood on him, hence trying to clean up or clean off objects with bleach." End quote. And that was something that I didn't even think about, which is why I love having these conversations with you guys, is the possibility of surveillance footage of the hotel. What was his demeanor when walking in and out of that hotel? Was he clean? Did he look scruffed up? Did he have anything on him? Was he carrying anything? That's a very, very, very good observation to make and one that I'm really curious to see. I'm sure the police have looked into that, but I would like to know what that looked like for him. And then the last quote we're going to read is from someone who says, quote, her husband put up the $200,000 because he knows that she won't be found. What man doesn't turn up to help the search group looking for his missing wife? Profiling evil is the place to go for all information on this case. The kids were on a camping trip arranged by Barry. That's not normal as Suzanne normally arranges everything to do with the kids. Now, again, I'm not exactly sure if this camping trip was arranged by Barry because there are some conflicting reports out there. However, if it was arranged by Barry, that just definitely seems like, like just a jackpot there. Why would Barry arrange a camping trip? for his kids on the weekend of Mother's Day. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense. So yeah, again, it was very interesting listening and hearing all your guys' comments because I said it in the video where I said I thought that this was going to be very split in half. Some of you were going to believe Barry and some of you were not. However, pretty much everyone does not believe Barry in this case from my video and from my podcast episode on it. And honestly, I think Chris Watts has a very big part in this. I think a lot of people are comparing Barry to Chris Watts because we had never really seen someone like Chris Watts before Chris Watts came around. There have been obviously previous cases where husbands murdered their families. However, in the same sense of, you know, Barry's doing the same video interviews, he has similar mannerisms, and there are just things about his story that don't make sense. And I think that it's very easy for people to say, oh, he's the next Chris Watts, whether that's true or not. I think it's just a very easy thing for people to say. And he very well could be. He very well could have done this. Um, It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Um, As far as the search that happened on the 24th, I haven't heard anything about any new information being presented. However, what I will say is that according to Barry, he said the reason he is not being a part of these searches is because he hasn't been invited by Andrew. Which personally I think is just BS. Your wife goes missing and you're not gonna go out and search for her because you haven't been formally invited. Like, no, come on. So that's just will be very interesting to see how this all plays out. And I really appreciate you guys being so vocal about your thoughts and theories. So thank you. I really encourage you to continue to do that so we can continue to have these open discussions. So with that being said, let's circle back around to today's case and who we are talking about today. Like I said we are discussing the unsolved murder of Veronica Anderson. Veronica was 42 years old when she was brutally murdered on August 25th, 1991 in Warrington, located in the UK. Now this case was actually one that you guys recommended for Halloween, which as a reminder, we are doing Halloween this year. Get ready, get excited. Um we're doing it both on Killer Instinct here and my YouTube channel, so you guys can look forward to that we're doing five days of back-to-back episodes leading up to Halloween, just as we did last year. So even though this case isn't a part of Halloweek, after looking into it, I knew that it was still a case that needed coverage, which is why we are here talking about it today. So let's talk about Veronica Anderson. Veronica, who went by Vera, that's what her close friends and family called her, which is what we are going to be referring to her as today. Vera was an amazing mother of two. She had a son and a daughter. At the time of her death, her daughter was 19 years old, and her son Neil was seven years old. Vera was described by her family and friends as a devoted and loving mother, and Vera was also really looking forward to where she was at her in her life and what this next chapter of her life was going to bring. Because at the time, her 19-year-old daughter Lorraine was actually pregnant with her first child. So Vera was super excited to become a grandmother. She absolutely couldn't wait for that. Vera was a single mom and her and her kids lived in Cheshire and Vera ran a business with her daughter Lorraine and another woman and this business was a small business and they worked at supplying sandwiches to shops and factories in the area. So they would make the sandwiches and hand them out to other businesses. So let's talk about August 24th, 1991. This was a Saturday night, and the night started out as a very typical Saturday. Lorraine, Vera's daughter, had gone out that night, so she was out for the night, and it was only Vera and her son at home. And while Neil was in bed, Vera was in the living room watching television. Now what we know is that at some point during this night, Vera received a phone call from someone and the identity of this caller has never been discovered. However, whoever called Vera, they convinced her enough to call her next door neighbor and ask her to babysit Neil for only 10 minutes while she left the house for a little bit. So to break it down, she gets a phone call and whoever was on the other line convinces her to leave her home and bring Neil to the neighbors so she could go out for a little bit. The neighbor agreed and that is when Vera woke her up and dropped him off at the neighbor's house. She told the neighbor that she was going to pick up her brother and she also emptied the trunk of her car as if she was making room to put something back there and then left her home at 10 15 p.m. When Vera left it was very clear that she left with the intention of returning back. She had left the tv in her house on and she had also left with her purse at home so wherever she was going she was clear planning on coming back. However, no one knew that when Vera drove off that night, that would be the last time she would ever be seen alive. On the early morning hours of the next day, which was Sunday, August 25th, Vera's car, which is a Ford Cortina, was found parked at the Old Tannery Complex. Now, the Old Tannery Complex back in 1991 consisted of abandoned buildings, and it had a reputation of being a place where either young couples would go if they wanted privacy, almost like a lover's lane, or it would also be a place where some drug deals would occur. Now, police were aware of the reputation that old tannery had, so because of this, there was typically always a patrol car driving around the area, and Saturday, August 24th was no exception. A police car was said to have passed by the area at 10.45 p.m. and noticed that there were no cars, so they continued on their route. So you can imagine the confusion when Vera's car was spotted at Old Tannery at about 3.18 a.m. on Sunday, August 25th. Now, not only did authorities find Vera's car, they found her brutally murdered inside of it with her body slumped over the steering wheel. Vera's throat had been slit and it was discovered that there were signs of strangulation post-mortem, so after Vera had already passed away, which is a sign of overkill. Vera was found fully clothed and there were no signs of sexual assault or robbery. Now, even though there was no murder weapon found at the scene, and to this day, the knife used to cut Vera's throat has never been discovered, authorities did find two other pieces of evidence that were left behind, the first being a blood-stained cotton glove as well as the second being a sash cord, which is a thin rope that is used to tie curtains. So it's basically just a thin rope. The medical examiner concluded that Vera's time of death was most likely somewhere around 11.30 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. Now, the news of Vera's murder absolutely stunned the entire community, and the public was very vocal in talking to the police. Everyone wanted to find out who did this to Vera. and No one was comfortable knowing that whoever was able to commit such a horrific crime was still walking free. So authorities in total collected about 6,500 statements from the public. However, these statements ultimately led to nothing. You can imagine the police's frustration after collecting 6,500 statements and still leading to nothing. Now, Lorraine was actually the one who identified Vera, which is just unimaginable. Pregnant at 19 and having to identify your mother after her brutal murder, she said it was obviously one of the hardest things she has ever had to do but she did say the hardest part was having to explain what happened to her seven-year-old brother, Neil. Obviously, he's seven years old, so he doesn't really understand fully what is going on to the extent of what happened. Now, authorities tried to see if they could collect any forensic evidence from Vera's car. However, they found nothing in there as well. There were no witnesses who came forward to say that they heard or saw any screams or a struggle at the murder scene. And police also couldn't find a motive. No one knew why anyone would want to go after Vera. She was a single mom, she loved her kids and seemed to stay very low key and in her own lane pain. All she cared about was her family, so why would someone want to commit such a heinous and horrific act upon her? Now even though there were no witnesses who came forward about seeing anything suspicious at the murder scene, there were multiple witnesses who came forward and said that on the night of the 24th at about 10:30 p.m., a woman who matched the description of Vera was seen at the Crown and Cushion pub. Now Vera was not known Known to be a regular at this pub, however, it was located very close to Vera's house that was a maximum 10 minute drive away and witnesses said that this woman, who was believed to be Vera, was seen with a man at the pub. This man has been described as a white male between the ages of 30 to 40 years old, standing at about 5'8 to 5'11 inches tall. He had short, light brown hair and a mustache. He was described as having a thin build, and on this particular night, he was wearing a yellowish-slash-tan-colored jacket. Witnesses said that the two didn't seem necessarily flirty or as if they were on a date. However, they did seem like they knew each other and that this wasn't their first encounter together. It's also important to note that no one has come forward to say that they saw them leave the pub together. Now, is it possible that this wasn't Vera and it was just another random couple? Yes, that's possible because we don't have any clear confirmation. However, the witnesses seem pretty certain that it was her and you would think if this wasn't Vera and this was just a random couple knowing what was going on, they would come forward and identify themselves if this wasn't them. Now, if Vera was out at a bar, it wasn't likely that she would be paying for anything herself because she left her purse at home. Is it possible that she brought her wallet with her? Yes, but that was never confirmed, so there would be no way for anyone who worked there to be confirming that she was there through any purchases that she had made. Now, based off of witness statements, police did come up with a composite sketch of what the man looked like. And if you want to see that, you can head over to my YouTube channel as I will have the sketch up in the video. Now, when authorities were getting statements from the public, one person came forward and said that at about 11 o'clock PM, a car matching Vera's description was seen behind old tannery with the headlights on. Okay, we're gonna take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now, in comparison to the Crown and Cushion Pub, Old Tannery is about a two-minute drive, so not far at all. Now, from where Old Tannery was, there was a man named Kenneth Adamson. Now, Kenneth Adamson's house overlooked old tannery, and according to Kenneth, he said that he remembers looking out of this back window and saw a car parked with its headlights on. Because this wasn't unusual for the area, Kenneth left it alone and decided to just go to bed. Now, then again, at about 1.30 a.m. on September 25th, a couple by the name of Richard and Eileen Thomas were walking home along old Tannery Lane after being out at a club. Now, while they were walking, they said that they saw a car matching Vera's car description parked. Now, like I said, this area was known to be somewhat of a lover's lane, so Richard and Eileen just assumed that that was what was going on and they left it alone as well and they continued walking. Then it was at 3.18 a.m. when authorities discovered Vera's body in her car. Now, based off of the evidence found, authorities concluded that the glove in particular proves that this was not a heat-of-the-moment murder or a random blitz attack. It proved that this was very much a premeditated murder because the glove was used to avoid leaving fingerprints at the crime scene. Now, let's talk about the glove for a second. This glove was an off-white colored glove made from a brand called Minette. After the glove went through forensic examination, it was confirmed that this glove did come in contact with Vera and that it had been worn by the killer. Authorities believe that the killer dropped the glove by mistake when leaving the scene. And you have to remember, this was 1991, so the technology at this point was nowhere near as advanced as it is now, so they really weren't able to do anything when it came to trying to match DNA to any other possible person in the system. Now, there was actually another witness who came forward during all of this, and this man was a taxi driver, and according to him, he picked up a man in his taxi about a half mile away from the crown and cushion pub as well as the murder scene. They're basically the same distance, so a half mile away from those at about 1 30 a.m. and was asked to be taken to an area called Halton View, which is about a hundred yards from Vera's home. The man was described by the taxi driver as being in his 30s. He was wearing a raincoat and he also had an injury to his right hand as it was seen wrapped around in a handkerchief and his knuckles were all scraped up. Now, this man has never been identified. They've never been able to identify who this man was. I'm not sure if they tried to trace back the location as to where the taxi driver took him and maybe he just wasn't there or he didn't live there or there was something else going on. I'm not exactly sure. However, I do know that the authorities did try to track him down. However, they were unsuccessful in this and he has never been identified. Is it possible that he had absolutely nothing to do with this? Yes, but are the coincidences bizarre enough that it should be looked into? Also yes. Now, as far as the investigation goes, like I said, authorities started out by getting up to 6,500 statements from people, 6,500 statements and authorities went as far as traveling to Europe to follow up on some potential leads. However, all of these attempts led to nothing as well. At the time of Vera's murder, there was a $38,000 reward for anyone who could offer any details on Vera's murder and for anyone who could help lead to an arrest. Now again, to this day, authorities have never really been able to figure out a concise motive. Vera, like I said, single mom, stayed in her own lane. However, when looking into Vera's life, authorities were able to piece some things together, and this is what they discovered. Now, like I said, Vera was described as a happy-go-lucky woman. She was well-liked and she didn't have any enemies. But one thing she did like to do a lot was go and visit the roll-in truck stop motel that was located not far from her home. This is where she spent most of her time socializing. She visited there several times a week and had several steady relationships with truck drivers that she had met there over the years. Lorraine, Vera's daughter, has said that Vera was the most popular person at the truck stop. There have been multiple reports released that said that Vera, at the time of her murder, was dating a man that she had met at the truck stop motel, and apparently, he would stay with her every Friday night. However, after that, he would go back and be with his wife and family. So, clearly, there was an affair going on and some disloyalty on her boyfriend's side, And I've yet to see the name of this boyfriend be released. However, I'm sure that the authorities are aware of who he is and have his name and have looked into him. But I did think it's interesting to mention because her social circle basically revolved around this roll-in truck stop motel. There were some other women who would go and socialize there as well. However, from what I've gathered, Vera was the most popular one there. She had a lot of friends there. She had different romantic relationships there over the years. Now, the general consensus with this case is that Vera knew the person that she went out to meet that night. Let's say on the off chance that it was a random attack. Why wouldn't the person that Vera went to meet that night come forward and say that they were with her, however, left at a certain point or didn't follow her after a certain time if they had absolutely nothing to do with it? Vera knew who her killer was. Whoever called her on Saturday night was important enough to wake up her son and go over to her neighbor's house and ask him to be watched. Even though she said she would only be gone 10 minutes, if it was Vera at the crown and cushion pub, she more than likely knew she was going to be out longer than that. Now, Lorraine believes that her mom's murder was pre-planned and carried out by someone that she knew and authorities also believe that this was premeditated and whoever murdered Vera called her that night knowing that that was the purpose of meeting up with her was to eventually murder her. Now, you might be thinking what I was thinking throughout all of this, which is, what about the phone call? Can authorities trace back the phone call and see who made the call to Vera that night? I have had the same thought running through my head, so I'm sure you guys have thought that too, and based off of my research, I have been able to find, surprisingly, that no one has talked about tracing back this phone call. Now, I think the reason for that is because this was either the first thing that authorities did, and maybe it traced back to a phone, or for whatever reason, authorities can't trace back the phone call at all. Maybe back then you weren't able to do that because remember, this did happen about 29 years ago. So it's been a long, long time. So maybe they didn't have the ability to do that back then. Because it hasn't really been brought up, it leads me to believe that they either looked into it and didn't get any information out of it, or that they did look into it and the information that they found was not helpful. Another big question that is sparked from this is why would Vera clear out the trunk of her car before leaving? Did she expect to put something back there and if so, what was that? Where did she think she was going and why did she think she needed to make room to put something back there? I also think it's important to note that the story about meeting her brother, which is what she told the neighbor she was doing when she left her son with them, was not true. Just in case that was not clear already, Vera was not going out that night to hang out with her brother. The family has been cleared out of having anything to do with this, and the reason they were ever questioned to begin with is not because it was believed that they were responsible. However, it was just because Vera had said it was her brother she was going to see, so they had to rule out that possibility completely, which they did. I also want to say that I think one thing that is very clear is that Vera's murder was personal. It was overkill. Her throat was slit and she was also strangled. Whoever did this had a lot of pent up anger against her. The strangulation was found to have happened post-mortem, so if you already know that slitting Vera's throat is going to kill her instantly, why go through the trouble of strangling her? The only reason you would do that is because you have built up rage that you want to get out, and according to everyone who knew Vera, she had no enemies, so there's a missing link here somewhere. And what's frustrating about this case is the fact that there isn't that much information on it. We don't know a lot. All we know is that Vera left her house that night with the intent of coming home. However, she never did. We don't know who she went to see and we don't really know where she went once she left the house. There was a five hour window between when Vera was last seen alive and when she was found murdered in her car. And the in-between timeframe is unclear. So let's talk about some potential theories. The Now, when I heard that Vera was dating a man who had a wife and a family, I thought it was very possible that there could be some connection between that and her murder. Maybe Vera threatened to come public with their affair and the man that she was seeing was not okay with that and freaked out and decided to murder her. Maybe they had talked about it before and he lured her in by saying that he wanted to talk about things and they could come forward with it only to have this premeditated plan to murder her instead to keep her quiet or maybe it was a team act. Maybe it was him and the wife together or maybe the wife had hired someone completely different to murder her instead, almost like a hitman. However, then that brings the phone call into question because Vera definitely knew the person on the other line. I did question for a little bit if it could have been possible that the wife was responsible because there was no sign of sexual assault and the overkill with the strangulation after she had already died seems like personal rage and personal vendetta. However, again, that brings into question why she would ever go out and meet the wife of the man that she's been having an affair with. It just doesn't seem really logical, and with the idea that the witnesses have come forward and stated that she was seen at the crown and cushion pub. However, what I will say is that if she did go and meet the wife, she probably wouldn't have seen it as a threat. She would have gone and thought that this was a non-threatening meeting because it was another woman and you don't really feel as a woman as threatened when you're going to meet another woman as you do if you're going to meet a man. Maybe the wife called her and said that she wanted to talk and get all the information straight. There's a lot of ways that this could have gone. Another theory is maybe This is someone who was from the truck stop motel who liked Vera, whether they had a crush on her or maybe they had a history and they tried to make an advance towards Vera or they didn't like the idea of her being with anyone else and she rejected them. And as a result, they acted out in a violent way. One thing to note though, is again, there was no sign of sexual assault. Her clothes were completely still on her body. And if this was an act of someone who felt rejected by Vera and wanted to prove their dominance, I think. Think that an act of sexual assault would have been prominent in that case. However, this theory might make more sense when it comes to the pub and Vera possibly being seen at this pub and it didn't seem like a date. She could have acted very platonic with this person because she didn't like them. That feeling of attraction wasn't mutual, so that's why it could have seemed like this was not a date. However, would a person like that be important enough for Vera to leave her house for in the middle of the night and give her son to her neighbor to baby he said, that I don't really think so. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that it has been 29 years since Vera's death and there is still no justice for her or her family. According to Lorraine, she said, quote, the murderers are still out there. That's the problem. That's what is really frustrating for her grandkids and for me. They are still out there walking around. They could be on the same street in the same town, it just makes you angry and frustrated." She also said, quote, "'I would like for the murderers to come forward. It would be good if they did. As time goes on, I think there's more than one person who knows about it. Just through the injuries my mom had, it's hard to imagine that this was just one person. If there was more than one person, it would be hard to keep quiet. Somebody obviously knows something," end quote. That also brings up the question that I turn to you guys and ask is, do you think that this was a one-person job? Do you think that there were multiple people involved in this? Now, Vera's family is hopeful that with the new developments in technology, that they will be hopefully getting answers as to what happened to Vera on this horrible night. This is one of those cases that doesn't get a lot of coverage and doesn't have a lot of information out there. And because it is an older case, it can feel like it's getting pushed to the side, which is why it's so important to keep spreading awareness about this case. I'm very, very interested to hear what you guys have to say about it, what your theories are, what you believe happened to Vera, whether you think it could be a theory we brought up here today or you think something completely different, please let me know. You can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com and we will be going over the theories in next week's case. And with that being said, you guys, that is all from me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, again, hi, my name is Savannah. I am your host of Killer Instinct. We make episodes every single Wednesday here. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. That way you never miss an episode. I will be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe.